You're listening to the Meditation and Attachment Podcast with George Haas. For more information, please visit our website at www.metagroup.org. That's www.m-e-t-t-a-g-r-o-u-p.org. So welcome everybody. This is Meditation and Attachment Deepening Your Practice. It's October 22nd, 2020. It's 7.35 p.m. Pacific time. And we completed a compassion cycle, and now we're going to begin uh, doing uh, a Vipassana cycle. Um, in looking at Vipassana meditation, what we're attempting to do is to touch into the sensing experiences that we use the data from to create the experience of conceptual reality and to understand what that process is so that we have insight into the nature of how we form self and world and so that we can begin to purify the distortions that tend to be uh, ingrained habitually in, in the way that we do that so that we can be present in the experience of the, the present moment as it is and that we can then be clear in terms of the intention and actions that we form so that when we take an action in the world, uh, we have, uh, uh, if we do create a karmic thread, uh, at least that it's a virtual cycle. Dan Brown, uh, um, one of my teachers, says that you want to get to a place where uh, the intention and action uh, creates a response in the world which is like writing on water, that it leaves practically no trace, uh, no karmic trace behind it at all. Everything is just arising in this liveliness of the present moment. And we're completely free in, in being in that experience of that liveliness. One of the things that we begin to explore in doing this is how we actually form the experience of ourselves in the present moment. We build these sometimes quite elaborate working models of ourselves, working models of the world. Buddhism, um, the, the world often refers to other people. We're relational beings who are meant to be in a complex social groups and to function in those groups. And so the world becomes other people in the way that we relate to them. One of the disadvantages of an affluent society is that you can afford not to have to depend on, on other people and then that uh, can cause you to separate from them. Uh, in the West, we, we often have a, a, a capacity to, be, to feel quite alienated from other people and at the same time uh, afford not to have to really be engaged with them uh, in order to survive in the world where in other parts that, that's less so. Uh, the collaborative effort to stay alive um, in areas that are less affluent uh, requires that you find a way to function with other people that we often can sidestep or avoid in our society, uh, particularly at the higher ends of it. What is it to be authentic is another way to look at this. Uh, can you allow yourself to know yourself in an unfiltered way where aspects of yourself um, uncomfortable so that you would rather that they not be part of what is the activity of you 
And how do we then come into a place where we can just allow all of it, the whole experience of ourselves to be, uh, we can be present for it, not need to escape from it or dislike any of it. And then how can we take in the experience of someone else and be with that experience without needing them to be different or reject parts of them? And so this is really what I think of as the uh, exploration of Vipassana or insight practice to really see what that process is like. As, we're, uh, as we develop uh, and uh, grow, we take on these um, experiences and have a particular way of storing them in memory and then using that memory that we've stored as a way of form an understanding of, of uh, ourselves in the world in the present moment. So we're often tied into uh, the experiences of the past and depending on the uh, resolution with the past that we have, uh, this can discolor or change or distort the experience of the present moment rather than just informing us what the experience of the present moment is like. So we have these six senses in Buddhism. We have uh, touching, seeing, hearing, tasting, smelling, the same as the, the West. Uh, and then we have mind as the sixth sense or uh, the activity of, uh, say, consciousness that forms things into something. In the pure sensing experience, you see, for instance, if we were to talk about seeing as the sensing experience, the activity of seeing is to see light and form, and the activity of uh, seeing consciousness or eye consciousness is to make what you see into something. So the, the, the capacity to sense moves around the environment, it creates these mind moments or these snapshots of things that have interest and value to us. And then we take that string of mind moments and we form it into our understanding of the experience that we're having in the present moment. Because conditioning is different for each person, the hierarchy of things that have value to each person is different. And so we're all, even if we're in the same environment, collecting different pieces of data, and forming the experience of self and world from a different set of data. So everybody has this experience of the present moment, even if it's in a shared experience of the present moment, that's gonna be uh, somewhat different than everyone else. And so we come into this deep understanding of the nature of this, that we have our experiences and that we don't take in a neutral assessment of what's in front of us, but we take a biased list of interesting things to us we gather those together and we take that list of interesting things, that list of mind moments that we've gathered and we turn it into the experience of self and world in the present moment. And that everybody's doing that and because everybody's list of high value targets is different, each of us is creating this uh, um, experience that is different. And then we project that experience outward and it appears uh, to the untrained mind to be an accurate uh, representation of the world that is out there. And so we begin to uh, turn our attention to this so that we can see clearly how that happens and begin to understand that actually 
this idea of what we have around us is coming from us and is projected outward rather than being uh, a passive taking in of what's happened, what's out there, uh, an accurate depiction of what's out there. And that we've created this uh, idea of what's out there and projected it out there. And that it, we do it in such a convincing way that we can walk around in it and think that, that it is what's there. One of the reasons why this is something that um, people don't necessarily want to dismantle is because it becomes frightening to think that we're not actually perceiving things accurately the way that they are, but that we're creating it and projecting it outward. How do you live with this amount of uncertainty? And that's part of this process of insight practice to see this precarious human condition and to be able to navigate it without being overcome by the fearfulness of that. In the beginning of this path of insight, we are coming from a place of having developed concentration and have undertaken a, an ethical training. I'd like to say that we make a decision to be a good person and then we undertake the training that's required for us to do that, to overcome our conditioning if we have unskillful conditioning so that we can operate in a place of uh, uh, an ethical point. I'm reminded of the, uh, I can't remember exactly who said it. Um, give me a place to place a fulcrum and a lever and I can move the world. <laughs> so this ethical point, this ethical point of view. This is important in terms of uh, purifying karma. You don't want to be uh, accumulating tons and tons and tons of negative karma at the same time you're trying to purify it. It just never ends. And then also for the mind to settle and relax uh, and to be open to this kind of inquiry you have to stop agitating it or frightening it, which is often what the outcome of unethical behavior. I like to use the progress of insight, uh, the commentary that Mahasi Sayadaw created as part of the Manual of Insight. It's been recently translated and it's a good translation by Steve Armstrong et al. Uh, Indika Sayadaw was a, uh, one of the people who helped with the translation. He's the person that we uh, study uh, metta with in uh, Myanmar. Archimedes, thank you, Christian. Often uh, we also use the Satipatthana as a map. Um, uh, but I tend to like uh, narrow and specific things uh, to work on rather than more open and general things to work on because of the way that my mind works. And so the appeal of the progress of insight is greater for me. Also, before I was aware of any maps, that just the, the way that my practice unfolded was very close to the to the, uh, that particular map. 
in Theravada Buddhism, uh, enlightenment is defined as the four path model, which is an eradication of the 10 fetters. Um, this is a different kind of, of view than say a Zen map or a Tibetan map would be. And stream entry, which is the first path. Christian, did you have a question? I'm just curious with the maps. Um, I have like a sort of inherent skepticism, not not of the maps themselves, but I feel like if I'm if like someone's going to tell me about a map, then I'm going to keep comparing my like progress against that too much. And like, is there a way to balance that where you're not getting too caught up in it? Just don't do it. Okay. <laughs> We're going to take Nancy Reagan's advice on, advice on this is just say no. <laughs> um, you know, uh, when I was 18, I, I was uh, hitchhiking around and I, I was in the south of France. And I decided I would go to Paris. And so I stuck out my thumb to go to Paris and I would go from small town to small town. And after like almost a, an entire day of hitchhiking, um, I did not get to Paris. And so I was talking to this guy about it and he said, well, what happens? And so I would, I'd, I'd be dropped off and then I'd go stand uh, under a street sign that said, that had an arrow that was pointing to Paris. Now in France in the South at that time, every single small town had an arrow that pointed toward Paris. And um, just going from signpost to signpost, uh, I was going in these big circles around the whole of Southern France, but I wasn't actually getting uh, to Paris because I wasn't good enough at, they had four different types of signs. Um, all of them said Paris and all of them pointed in a particular direction. And um, what he clued me into is that the color and the, the typeface and the size of the sign all meant that they were different systems of signs. And that if you went from signpost to signpost and you just read uh, Paris, that you would go in circles. This is a long-winded metaphor. Um, when you come into insight practice, what you discover is that there's many, many insights and many different kinds of insights, psychological insights, insights related to solving problems in the present moment, insights related to enlightenment, insights related to uh, parallel inquiries into different kinds of fascinating mind states. Um, and uh, how do you know which insights are more valuable to pay attention to than other insights and which insights will lead you to uh, enlightenment if that's what the goal for practice is and which insights will uh, if you pay attention to them end up putting you in a, a kind of a circling pattern where you don't actually make progress in the way that you want to go uh, you could be in relationship to a teacher who constantly monitor the practice that you are making uh, and uh, continually correcting the direction that you're going into, or um, you could use a map that gave you a sort of arc of what practice might be like. 
And I know that in the West, we're quite competitive. And, and a lot of the, the conversation in Dharma circles is a, is a kind of competitive, um, uh, we used to call it state envy uh, uh, back uh, 20 years ago or so at the beginning for me. Um, but how do you know how to organize your practice in such a way that you're making a, a efficient use of the practice time that you're heading in the direction that you want to go in. And so I don't think of it as a, a, a and I know that comparing mind is there and also efforting mind can there, striving mind can be there. Um, we tend to be trained in the West uh, around goal orientation and all of those things can be used skillfully or unskillfully. And so would be monitoring and balancing that relationship so they are actually making progress in a good way that's efficient with the practice time that you have. Um, is that the point that I'm trying to make um, becoming clear? Um, one of the things that happens uh, if you don't have a teacher and you're not in a regular dialogue with them and you don't have some sense of how to organize your practice, you can get, Kinzen um, used to say, when you come in, you want to drop in, in, in is, is directly a straight line from ordinary mind into enlightened mind. And that understand as you drop down, you can get fascinated by things and just go in a parallel progress that really has no end to it. And that you get stuck in these parallel places that never actually lead you into a deeper uh, experience or a more enlightened experience. And yet you seem, they, they seem to be rich and fertile grounds for practice. And so that's uh, um, why I like uh, the use of maps. Maybe it would be better if there was a universal map that was uni that, that applied to everyone and everyone could use it. But the problem is everyone's conditioning is different. And so your relationship to the map is going to be different than my relationship to the map because my conditioning is different than yours. And so you'll have to see whether it's useful or not to you. But I think of it more as um, a roadmap uh, in terms of a way of helping me to read the signs of what's coming up in the practice so that I can be efficient in heading in the direction that I want to go rather than being a list of instructions that I have to follow verbatim one after the other. It's nice to have signposts so that you can recognize uh, the value of different insights and then focus mainly on the ones that really will lead you to where you want to go rather than spending too much time caught up in things that don't go anywhere. But then I'm also uh, really impatient as a, as a person. <laughs> My, I value efficiency. <laughs> Not good enough? Mm. In the beginning, um, uh, in the Satipatthana Sutta, it, it really is describing how to come into a meditative state. And so uh, ardency is one, uh, sensory clarity is one, mindfulness is one, and uh, concentration is one, those four basic skills. 
ardency means energy or being able to monitor your energy. You don't want to be so energized that the mind is restless and won't settle, but you don't want to have so too little energy so that the mind is sleepy or sluggish. You want it to be bright, but not restless. So you're monitoring the level of energy. You want to be able to have sensory clarity. And in the beginning, you may not have a sufficient resolution to really be able to come into an understanding of how the sensing experiences is converted into uh, the experience of conceptual reality. And so you'll need to develop a higher level of uh, resolution and sensory clarity. You want to be able to tell the difference between visual experience, auditory experience, the felt sense of the body. And then you want to be able to tell the difference between um, the perception of outside and the perception of inside. And you'll want to be able to have good enough clarity that you can discern subtle variations in, in both of those kinds of experiences. You want to be able to tell the difference between activations and rest states. You want to be able to tell the difference between uh, fixated states and unfixated states. Um, and so when you can do that and you have all of those set, then you have enough sensory clarity really to go into any of the insight practices and get out of them what you need to know. Mindfulness is a technical term, which means awareness of the present moment. So you want to be able to maintain awareness of the present moment continuously or almost continuously, which is about being able to place your attention where you want to keep it and keeping it there and not getting pulled away into other kinds of distractions or thoughts or um, in the beginning, often we're driven by a, a craving for entertainment things and an aversion to things that are boring or unpleasant. And so you'll notice that the attention is constantly moving to things that we consider pleasant and away from things that aren't pleasant. And it creates this very skewed perception of what's actually happening because we're focusing on not necessarily virtuous or useful things, but things that are pleasant to experience. And so we train our attention to be mindful, to be present for whatever the circumstance of the present moment is and not needing to get away from it. And then to have a sufficient level of concentration that we can do all of that. And if all of those things are present, then you enter into a meditation state. And we want to be able to recognize a meditation state from a thinking state so that we can spend our time engaged in the practice of meditation and not in the practice of thinking. And then the Satipatthana Sutta goes through this list of different ways to explore and what to explore. And I really prefer the list that came from the Abhidhamma, which is uh, what the Mahasi is a commentary on to the list of investigations. In the Satipatthana Sutta, except in the refrain, there's a, a mindfulness of inside, mindfulness of outside, mindfulness of inside and outside, which is a kind of rhythm of exploration. This is the internal experience, that's the external, that's the experience outside, and there's an interaction between the internal experience and the external experience, and I can monitor all of that. Um, I can monitor it to a degree of specificity and um, detail. 
so that I can really understand what's happening and I can infer from that uh, singly investigated sensing experience that all sensing experiences like that happen like that so that I also don't need to catch everything. I can be in the experience and infer that if this particular sensing experience is going on like that, then other sensing experiences can go on like that. Um, and then the last piece then is this equanimity piece that I can come into the experience of the present moment, be there and just hold on to that, um, not needing to get away from it, not needing to uh, be in some other experience, not spacing out. In the original teaching of Mahasi, he uh, suggested that you create uh, specific labels for each thing that you were doing. Um, so I'm lifting my hand, I'm lifting my hand, I'm turning my hand, I'm turning my hand, I'm lowering my hand, I'm lowering my hand. But this constant stream of, of almost a kind of commentary on what's happening. Um, I'm talking now, I'm looking at a screen now, I'm hearing the fan now, I see the light over my head, I can see my foot below me, I'm wearing shorts and there's a shine on my skin, which I think I should uh, use my, uh, uh, I have this scraper thing that uh, exfoliates, that's all coming into my mind as I'm sitting here. I was enjoying this water, so I think I'll have more. But one of the things that I noticed in, in practicing in that way is that it, it, the commentary can easily flip into a narrative and then I lose the experience of the present moment. I'm drawn into the narrative. And then I'm always having to engage the self activity in a strong way in order to come up with an appropriate description of what's happening. And so many years ago when Shinzen uh, began to frame this as the see, hear, feel, uh, piece and that you rather than descriptively describe uh, descript, describe every um, thing that's happening, you go for this very generic way of describing it, which really uh, fostered this sense of equanimity that you could really just uh, have a very plain general description of uh, things. And then rather than noting this movement and this description of, of the, of the body-mind that's associated with pieces and parts, that you begin to monitor instead the sense gates themselves, <clears throat> which is a kind of uh, uh, shortcut, so that you come into a place where you're actually monitoring whether the sensing activities of this group of six senses is active or not active. And that that um, helps you to move from this place of total identification with the content of thinking and the content of description to uh, an awareness of the activations of the sense gates themselves and how the sensing data is brought in and then turned into the experiences uh, that were uh, typically in the, in the way of practicing Mahasi, but we're uh, in the descriptions. And so it, it moves you into this place of uh, a deeper sense of equanimity and a, and a greater sensitivity to the 
activations of sensing rather than into uh, getting caught up over and over again into the content of thinking. Uh, is that making sense so far? So this very basic uh, exercise of dividing sensing experience into these groups, visual experience, auditory experience, and the felt sense of the body, the five senses, uh, touching, seeing, hearing, tasting, smelling, touching uh, then the feel sense of the body, including tasting and smelling. So you have this clump of three of the senses in feel and then visual experience and auditory experience. It also is very useful in, in the sense of uh, understanding the nature of the experience of self, which is internal, and the, the nature of world, which is external. So auditory thinking, visual thinking, and the emotional content in the body tends to be the sensing activations that create the experience of self. And the world is the external sight, external sound, and the felt sense of the body, the temperature, the pressure, all of that stuff. And so what we're gonna to do tonight is begin this process of, of investigating just this basic uh, sensing experience. And then next week we'll add to that the sixth sense of mind. Mind um, being an interesting um, experience. In tonight's meditation, as you're sitting there, some attention is to, uh, some pay attention to where attention goes. You're in, say, visual experience, and then all of a sudden your mind is drawn to auditory experience, and then it's drawn to the body, then to a different part of the body, then back to visual thinking, then back to auditory thinking. The attention flows from object to object. You may even be able to watch your attention flow from maintaining the meditation experience into thinking. Because the attention moves from object to object, it flows and we can watch that process of it flowing, which is this uh, sensing experience of mind. And then we can begin to watch this process where mind takes the eye consciousness, say if we're talking about visual experience, um, eye, the activity of eye sensing and with eye consciousness makes the sensing experience into something. And the same is with hearing, you have the capacity to hear, but then the hearing consciousness makes what you hear into something. So can you hear the sound of my voice as pure vibration? And then can you watch the activity of that pure vibration being made into words that then have this whole associated meaning to? Um, or do you just get caught up into the content and lose the capacity to track the sensing activity? So we're, we're gonna do a period of sitting with it, just this basic see, hear, feel technique. So with see, hear, feel, we're dividing things into auditory, visual, and the felt sense of the body. When you sit Vipassana meditation, you typically sit eyes closed, so the external sight space is, space is unavailable, but there is aspects of internal 
visual thinking that are available. So a mental screen where you see imagery associated with thinking. There's often a sense of the outline in the current position, outline of the body in its current position, uh, the sense of the body's location in the current environment, a, a visual reaction to sensation in the body. Uh, so if you have a pain in the knee, there's often a, a reaction that creates a visual experience that is the knee, and then there's often a visual a reaction, an internal visual thinking reaction to exterior sound. In sound space, you have both the external sound space and also internal auditory thinking. And in the body, you have emotion, and you have all of the sensations of the physicality of the body. So we're going to sit for a period of time and just note uh, uh, just divide up the body into these three groups of sensing. Are there any questions about this before we begin? Okay, so go ahead and uh, take your meditation posture. So how did that go? Easy peasy. Can't wait it for it to get much harder. <laughs> uh, George, is it okay to keep some focus on the breath um, while I'm doing this? Because I tend to need some grounding. So I, I thought maybe I experimented and uh, kind of focused on my breath to some extent, but then still try to do the see, hear, feel. Um, how are you noting the breath? Maybe sensing uh, the inhale and exhale. I just feel if sensing the So that would inhaling. be feel. Um, and were you noting that as feel? Mm, I didn't really because I know feel is supposed to be external feeling and internal feeling is emotion. So I didn't well, really, not, I didn't do it. We weren't making that discernment today. We were just, all sensations in the body were feel. So the breath sensations would be feel. Oh, okay. So the one thing though that I would adjust is that it's a zooming in practice. So that mm -hmm. when your attention is drawn, say, to the breath, you zoom in on the sensations of the breath, really to the exclusion of all other sensations and note feel. And then if your attention is drawn somewhere else, you zoom all the way in on that sensation and note it as whatever it is. Um, if you uh, focus on the breath and then at the same time try to track the other experiences, uh, you're, you're, you're having to zoom out and hold too much. And so it isn't really doing the technique in the way that it's designed. If you're getting pulled away because um, uh, then the, the piece that needs to, to be developed is more concentration. But if you wanted to alternate coming into the breath and establishing concentration, then go back out to the see here field technique, that probably would be a better way to do it. So in other words, going back to what you were just teaching on the concentration practice with the counting one to five or one to 10 uh, on the inhale or exhale. So that's right. maybe what you're referring to. 
Right. Mm -hmm. And then once the mind is concentrated, switch to the see-hear-feel technique until you get too scattered and then come back and reconsolidate the mind with the concentration practice. And then go back to the see-hear-feel. So that takes that takes discernment and that takes some kind of discernment and uh, and tuning into that. Correct. Yeah. Which is what we want you to do. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. <laughs> All right. Good. Someone else. George, I have a question. Okay. Um. So I'm doing see, hear, feel, and just a whole bunch of visual imagery or auditory sound is going on, uh, stories, um, images, like fast right. coming from, and, and I'm sitting there and I can find myself in the middle of a visual story or an auditory story and I'll feel like I'm kind of, caught up in thinking but at the same time that I'm doing that I'm, it's like a layering system then then what I do is I, I label even though I'm incredibly caught up in the memory or whatever um, it, it, it just seems like there's a layer then that says hear or feel <laughs> on top of this like vast story that I'm caught up in so Am I supposed to, I mean, does that mean I'm, I'm concentrated enough to do this exercise if I'm caught up in thinking, but I can label it here at the same time? Uh, it is, but, but you're, you're playing with danger. Uh, the, the image I have is that you're standing on the riverbank, the raging river is flowing by and you're just dipping your toe into the river, hoping that you don't get swept away okay. into the content. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Um, so you wanna, that... you wanna, what, if you notice that you're getting pulled too much into the content and you're about to lose the monitoring okay. aspect, you just wanna pull back more into the monitoring. Oh, okay. Okay, okay, that, that, that helps a lot, thank you. Right, or you're just leaning forward, leaning forward, leaning forward, uh, and still maintaining your balance, but if you go a little bit too further, you'll just fly into the river instead of yeah. staying on the bank. Ah, thank you very much. Good. Someone else? Christian. You're still muted. All right. Um. I was like in my body the whole time and uh, almost never in visual or, or auditory thinking, but I, I felt like I was just like going from uncomfortable place to uncomfortable place. <laughs> and I, I like, I would like, I'd be like, man, that's really uncomfortable. And then I kind of zoom into it and it would like help a little bit. And then like, I don't know, it was like, it was all really uncomfortable and I was able to kind of zoom into it and stay with it. And it didn't, it's like I would realize that it was like super intense and then I would just kind of be like, well, I guess I might as well go into it more and just kind of not have the label so much because I would kind of realize that I was 
thinking about how uncomfortable it was. Like I was adding something to just the sensation of it. But I, but like the whole time I was just like uncomfortable. <laughs> so I, I don't know. So um, how do you know you're uncomfortable? Because I'm having, well, there's the feeling, there's the feeling of discomfort and, and, or, or like there's pain. a sens sensation that's painful. And yeah. Then there's also an emotional sensation in the body and there's also thinking. And if there's thinking, is it auditory or visual? I guess it's more auditory. Okay. So then you would be auditory. There's going to be no physical pain in auditory, uh, right? Auditory experience. Yeah. Well, there's just the ringing in my ears in auditory experience. Oh, you have tinnitus? <laughs> yeah. Um, but I'm, I'm pr but, pretty equanimous with that at this point. So. And it's not physically painful. It's just annoying, which is yeah. emotional, which is back in the body. So one of the things about the Vipassana is you're pulling everything apart. Is the physical pain in the body so distressing if you're in auditory thinking space and not in the body? Because the auditory thinking tends to amplify the overall distress of the painful experience. But if you pull them apart, is it then coming into a range of possibility that you can just allow each of the experiences? Well, I would like, I would just be like, there was one point where whatever was going on outside started to sound much louder. And so I would just pay attention to that. And yeah. the body, the body part sort of went away. So if I went into the auditory a lot in terms of the external, then, or even if I did listen to just the, the ringing, the other the 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 pain or the sensation in the body would tend to go away right so then you have that insight into the nature of pain yeah and also the skill of being able to focus on it or away from it to to moderate it so it sounds it sounds like you you did it right okay good someone else George, I was just curious about Christian's experience. Could that have a be similar to the second arrow of Buddhism in a way that when we cause more pain with the second arrow? Right, it is. Oh. Mm -hmm. So you have the first arrow of the sensation, but then if you don't like the sensation, you can amplify the distress of it by not wanting it. Mm-hmm. And then you could have third and fourth arrows. <laughs> <laughs> you could both not watch it and want something else and space out all at the same time. <laughs> Good. All right. Well, thank you, everybody, for coming. Um, we'll continue with this Vipassana for, for a few weeks. Uh, what I have coming up is... Uh, on Saturday, we have a, a day long called Meditation and Attach Attachment for Couplings, which is a discussion of the nature of secure functioning in relationships and, and how to operate in a collaborative relationship experience. Good for friends, uh, uh, friendship relationships and romantic relationships. And the class is for single people and couples. If you come as a couple, you'll, you'll work together. And if you come as a single person, you'll be assigned different people uh, to work with throughout the day. It starts at nine, ends at four. There's three periods. Uh, 
9 to 11, 11, 15 to 115, and then 2 to 4. Um, I'm doing a reading of my new book on November 7th. Um, it's called The Lower Manhattan Dormitory Effect, and I'm going to read from it. Uh, uh, so we'll be sending out an, uh, uh, an announcement for that. Uh, at the beginning of December, we're going to start another level two class. So if you're interested in going uh, more deeply into the attachment stuff, uh, take a look at that. There's, the class is limited to 12 and it's about half full. We do have some scholarships available for it. And there's a, a couple of different levels that you can get into it. So uh, uh, if the attachment material is interesting to you, take a look at that. I'm going to do a short retreat uh, for the Meditation and Attachment for Addictions, uh, uh, December 12th and 13th, so a weekend retreat. It will be a full day on Saturday and a half day on Sunday, and we'll go through the four modules related to uh, uh, working with relapse pre prevention with uh, addiction. It's uh, for both uh, process addiction and substance addictions, and we use both a abstinence and a harm reduction model. It's based on the work of Alan Marlatt and, um, and also the attachment work of John Bowlby. Uh, I've taught it for many years in different rehabs around town um, and, uh, and we're gonna try it in the uh, uh, weekend retreat format. I'm doing it in conjunction with the Dharma Recovery Collective. And so come to that if you'd like. We have uh, a retreat coming up, um, which is uh, December 26th to uh, uh, January 2nd. It's a six-day uh, Metta Vipassana retreat. Uh, that's limited to 24 spaces, and it is also also it is also uh, about half full. Um, so if you're interested in that, take a look at that. We do have scholarships for that as well. And I think that that George, was, is your book. Is your book reading going to be through Zoom? Yeah. Ah, okay. Thank you. So, yeah, it looks like we're going into a resurgence of COVID, so everything's going to be on Zoom. I think at least until you know the fall of twenty-two. <laughs> um, so. We're going to do another level one class in uh, starting in uh, January of uh, 2021, uh, and I'll give you the dates as we have them. I offer this class on a Donna basis. Donna is the Pali word for generosity, so I offer the teaching freely, but I do hope that you'll make a donation uh, to help support me and also to support the work that Medic Group is doing. There's a link for a donation uh, on the website and also in the email you received. Any amount is appreciated. And of course, if you're not resourced and can't do that at this time, I, I totally understand that. And we're very happy as a community to support your practice without needing to do uh, anything about that. Thank you for coming and we'll see you next time. Bye now.